International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast, Episode 1, Burgess and Dystopia. In 1946, George Orwell wrote an essay called The Prevention of Literature. In it, he lays out his concerns about the stifling of freedom for the artist by the totalitarian ideal. In many ways, it can be seen as a blueprint for his own depiction of a totalitarian state in 1984, with his examination of how the failings of the intellectuals in society can lead to mass suppression of the population. Left-wing, new statesman-reading intellectuals were, according to Orwell, crypto-totalitarians who would distort any political ideology into a dogmatic system of control. This was powerful stuff for Anthony Burgess, who would take Orwell's writing in new directions with his own work of dystopian fiction. Burgess's engagement with Orwell is well documented through his own journalistic writing and his own well-thumbed copies of Orwell's books in the collection at the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. Yet for Burgess, Orwell's futuristic visions of corrupt intellectuals and state control were not prophecy, rather a veiled depiction of the uncertain years following World War II. In his novel, 1985, a literary response to Orwell's famous dystopia, he explains this further. Let me tell you about 1949, when I was reading Orwell's book about 1948. The war had been over four years, and we had missed the dangers. Buzz bombs, for instance. You can put up with privations when you have the luxury of danger. But now we had worse privations than during the war, and they seemed to get worse every week. The meat ration was down to a couple of slices of fatty corned beef. One egg a month, and the egg was usually bad. I seem to remember you could get cabbages easily enough. Boiled cabbage was a redolent staple of the British diet. You couldn't get cigarettes. Razor blades had disappeared from the market. I remember a short story that began, It was the 54th day of the new razor blade. There's comedy for you. You saw the effects of German bombing everywhere, with London pride and loose strife growing brilliantly in the craters. It's all in Orwell. The London in which Winston Smith lives has the omnipresent stench of boiled cabbage, and cigarette ends are duly saved for later as the impoverished population trudge the streets in leaky shoes and worn-out socks. Orwell smothered his image of a post-war London with a political totalitarianism similar to the twin threats of Nazism and Stalinism, presenting a world where the intelligentsia had failed in their responsibilities and were complicit in the establishment of an oppressive regime. Orwell's party intellectuals can pervert any established knowledge in order to win a debate. As the famous party propaganda says, 2 plus 2 equals 5. Orwell's depiction of the corruption of intellectuals in the face of totalitarianism would have reminded Burgess of his military career. In 1943, he was posted to Gibraltar as part of the Education Corps, where his job was to lecture the troops from a textbook called The British Way and Purpose. Originally published as a series of pamphlets containing essays by various eminent social historians, this scheme was intended to inspire the squaddies to become responsible citizens 
in a world where the threat of totalitarianism was constant. Once the totalitarian state is established, no one knows how it can be destroyed. It is vital to prevent its establishment, and there is only one way to do that to make democracy an alive and vital thing, and that means you and me. We are democracy. We are the people. If we shirk our responsibilities, if we hand over the management of our affairs to other people, if we think that six times a week to the cinema is better than doing a job for our neighborhood and for our country, then we are inviting dictatorship. Dictatorship relies on creating passive citizens, but passive citizens also create dictatorships. Before Burgess joined the army in 1940, He was much more concerned with pursuing a life in the arts, more specifically music, than with any political motivation. It would not be too much of a leap to suggest that the British way and purpose inspired Burgess's first sustained contemplation of political theory, and when he left the army in 1946, its rhetoric remained with him as he began to write fiction. Burgess claimed that the Hitler War failed to stimulate novelists, and that the stamping out of wretched tyranny was such a grim chore. That it could not stimulate the imagination. But it is clear that both his own experience in the military and the political state of Europe as a result of the Second World War became preoccupations for much of his fiction. Just as the state of post war London is ingrained on Orwell's vision of the future, so too would Burgess's war be visible between the lines of his own dystopian fictions. Yet it would be wrong to suggest that 1984 was the first piece of dystopian fiction that Burgess had engaged with after his immersion in the politics of the British way and purpose. After the war, Burgess had been impressed by a novel he found in the small library of the transport ship that was taking him home from Gibraltar. Rex Warner's novel, The Aerodrome, published in 1941, would prove formative to the young Burgess. It would have resonated with Burgess's dislike of military rule and his hatred of his commanding officer, Major Bill Meldrum. It tells the story of a messy, degenerate village gradually being overtaken by its neighbour, a militaristic, fascist aerodrome where the staff are dedicated to cleanliness and efficiency. The leader of the aerodrome, the Air Vice Marshal, preaches the same sort of utopian ideal as Adolf Hitler a doctrine of freedom through self control and the assual of brutal instinct. After six years under military rule and regulation, often playing the role of the unkempt subversive, It is clear that Burgess's sympathies lay with the protagonist, Roy, who lives in the messy village. The Air Vice Marshal represents the same sort of authority that Burgess detested. He writes in his 1982 introduction to Warner's novel Roy voices the philosophy which ensures that neither he nor ourselves will ever be tempted again to put on the uniform of the collectivist state. The imperfect village, despite the Sophoclean dangers that lurk there, is, by reason of its formlessness, its lack of cut and dried philosophy, exciting and adventurous. The aerodrome, despite its firmness of purpose and its superhuman technology, pilotless planes, for instance, is a negation of life. Even before he stumbled across the aerodrome in that tiny ship's library in 1946, Before he began teaching the British way and purpose in 1943, Burgess was already familiar with another dystopian novel, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. 
The International Anthony Burgess Foundation book collection has an edition in which Burgess has inscribed his initials JBW for John Burgess Wilson and the year 1938, suggesting that he read Huxley's book in his first year as a student at the University of Manchester. While Brave New World would prove influential for Burgess, it is arguable that Huxley's assessment of his own novel, Brave New World Revisited, would spur Burgess to write his own dystopian fiction. Much of Brave New World Revisited, published in 1959, concerns ideas that Burgess was to adopt and mutate in his novels A Clockwork Orange and The Wanting Seed, both published in 1962. Huxley admits in his first chapter that he believes Orwell's dystopia to be a more plausible picture of the future than his own, but certainly Burgess was taken with Huxley's non-fiction writings on overpopulation, brainwashing and subconscious persuasion. Brave New World Revisited also reinforces the notion of the educated and responsible citizen as the only way to stop the rise of a totalitarian state. The value, first of all, of individual freedom, based upon the facts of human diversity and genetic uniqueness. The value of charity and compassion, based upon the old familiar fact, lately rediscovered by modern psychiatry, the fact that, whatever mental and physical diversity, love is as necessary to human beings as food and shelter. And finally, the value of intelligence, without which love is impotent and freedom unattainable. This set of values will provide us with a criterion by which propaganda may be judged. The propaganda that is found nonsensical and immoral may be rejected out of hand. That which is merely irrational, but compatible with love and freedom, and not on principle opposed to the exercise of intelligence, may be provisionally accepted for what it is worth. Both A Clockwork Orange and The Wanting Seed can be seen as a reaction to not only Brave New World Revisited, but also to Burgess's political development in his military career and his engagement with the conventions of existing dystopias, particularly those of Orwell. The first of Burgess's novels to arrive was A Clockwork Orange, telling the story of Alex, a dangerous teen who enjoys nothing more than ultraviolence, rape, and the old Ludwig van. Arrested by the state police, he undergoes a new brainwashing technique to turn him into a responsible citizen. Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! I kept on creeching out. Turn it off, you grasny bastards, for I can stand no more. It was the next day, brothers, and I had truly done my best, morning and afternoon, to play it their way and sit like a horror show, smiling, cooperative malchick in the chair of torture while they flashed nasty bits of ultraviolence on the screen, my glasses clipped open to vidi all, my plot and rookers and nogas fixed to the chair so I could not get away. What I was being made to vidi now was not really a vetch I would have thought to be too bad before, it only being three or four malchicks crasting in a shop and filling their carmens with cutter, at the same time fillying about with the creeching starry titzer running the shop, toll-chocking her and letting the red, red crovy flow. But the throb and like crash, crash, crash in my gulliver and the wanting to be sick and the terrible, dry, rasping thirstiness in my rot, all were worse than yesterday. Oh, I've had enough, I cried. It's not fair, you vonny sods. And I tried to struggle out of the chair, but it was not possible, me being as good as stuck to it. The brainwashing scenes in A Clockwork Orange are largely inspired by Huxley's writing on the subject in Brave New World Revisited. 
Huxley writes about the behavioural conditioning pioneered by Ivan Pavlov, but also of the Nazi dictatorship's methods of conditioning subjects to agree with the fascist cause. For a young Nazi, Huxley writes, a tour of duty in the extermination camps was, in Himmler's words, the best indoctrination on inferior beings and the subhuman races. The stress of witnessing the horrors of the camps would, according to Huxley, inspire complete cerebral breakdown and make the victim more susceptible to being mentally rebuilt in the image that the Third Reich found most useful. In other words, the state was using barbaric methods in order to make an individual citizen a useful addition to the ideology. In many ways, Burgess can be seen to be reappropriating this openly totalitarian method of behavioural conditioning in the treatment that Alex undertakes as the stresses he undergoes coupled with the chemical injections inspire a cerebral breakdown. Even the films Alex is forced to watch contain imagery that would point to this interpretation. What it was now was the starry 1939-45 war again, and it was very blobby and liney and crackly film you could vidi had been made by the Germans. It opened with German eagles and the Nazi flag with that like crooked cross that all Malchiks at school loved to draw, and then there were haughty and nadmany-like German officers walking through streets that were all dust and bomb holes and broken buildings. Then you were allowed to vidi ludies being shot against walls, officers giving the orders, and also horrible nagoy plots left lying in gutters, all like cages of bare ribs and white thin nogas. Burgess is dramatising the idea of the responsible citizen as seen in The British Way and Purpose. Alex, at the beginning of the novel, is anything but a responsible citizen. His actions have no community benefit and offer no challenge to governmental powers. But after his immersion in Ludovico technique, he is turned into what his captors believe to be a responsible citizen. Yet the responsible citizen of The British Way and Purpose and Huxley's Brave New World Revisited is one that is educated enough to make choices and has active involvement in the political life of a culture. The new Alex may be a responsible citizen in that he does not commit crime, but he is also the opposite of the example of responsibility in the British way and purpose, a passive subject without the ability to challenge socio-political ideology or make moral choices. The Wanting Seed, Burgess's next novel, also deals with the growing power of the state to impose controls on the populace. Too many babies born, too many babies born, a fair child womb is a thing of gloom, soon there won't be standing room. Population without population, that is our need and our desire. May God preserve the condom, the pessary to all cause. Translation in the name when we can stay the life force and its source. Masturbation means of procreation, but hasn't got the true erotic fire. Quintus interruptus is somewhat second grade. And as for God's periods, it's often hard to wait. I draw the sprinkles, femicide, I filter on my plate. Set in an unspecified future, 
The story concerns an overpopulated world whose governments are struggling to maintain order in the face of food shortages and sprawling, densely populated cities. The fictional London, in which the protagonist Tristram and Beatrice Fox live, extends from the south coast to Birmingham in the north. In order to combat the rising population, the totalitarian Ministry of Infertility polices the population with brutal grey boys, encouraging homosexual relationships with the slogan, It's Sapiens to be Homo. From this setup, Burgess explores increasing global famine and military dictatorship. A wet August and a parched September, but the sickness of the world's grain crops seemed to ride like an aircraft above the weather. It was a blight never known before, its configuration under the microscope not cognate with any other pattern of disease, and it proved resistance to all the poisons the Global Agricultural Authority could devise. But it was not only rice, maize, barley, oats and wheat that were affected, Fruit fell off the trees and hedges, stricken with a sort of gangrene. Potatoes and other roots became messes of black and blue mud. And then there was the animal world. Worms, coccidiosis, scaly leg, marble bone disease, fowl cholera, prolapse of the oviduct, vent gleet, curled toe paralysis, slipped hock disease, these were just a few of the maladies that struck the hen batteries and turned them into feathery morgues. Shoals of rotting fish corpses were washed ashore on the northeast coast during October. The rivers stank. The developing world situation in The Wanting Seed echoes Huxley's premonition of an overpopulated planet in Brave New World Revisited. The fantastically rapid doubling of our numbers, Huxley writes, will be taking place on a planet whose most desirable and productive areas have already been densely populated, whose soils are being eroded by the frantic efforts of bad farmers to raise more food, and whose easily available mineral capital is being squandered with the reckless extravagance of a drunken sailor getting rid of his accumulated pay. In The Wanting Seed, Burgess seems to suggest that the failure of the human population to procreate has been mirrored by nature. If man won't breed, then nature won't breed either. While Huxley stops at mere warning, Burgess takes the sparse and arid situation to a gruesome endpoint as the fascistic grey boys are overcome by reckless indulgence and mob rule. Late December, in Bridgewater, Somerset, Western Province, a middle-aged man named Thomas Wharton, going home from work shortly after midnight, was set upon by youths. These knived him, stripped him, spitted him, basted him, carved him, served him, all openly without shame, one of the squares of the town. A hungry crowd clamoured for hunks and slices, kept back that the king's peace might not be broken, by munching and dripping grey boys. In Thirsk, North Riding, three lads, Alfred Pickles, David Ogden and Jackie Priestley, were struck dead with a hammer in a dark ginnel and dragged into a terrace house by way of the backyard. The street was gay for two nights with the smoke of barbecues. In Stoke-on-Trent, the carcass of a woman 
later identified as Maria Bennett, spinster, aged 28, grinned up suddenly, several good clean cuttings off her, from under a bank of snow. In Gillingham, Kent, Greater London, a shady backstreet eating shop opened, grilling nightly, and members of both police forces seemed to patronise it. In certain unregenerate places on the Suffolk coast, there were rumours of big, crackling Christmas dinners. In Glasgow, on Hogmanay, a bearded sect professing worship of Najal offered a multiple human sacrifice, reserving the entrails for the deified burnt advocate, the flesh for themselves. Kirkaldi, less subtle, saw a number of private Cayleys with meat sandwiches. The new year commenced with stories of timid anthropophagy from Maryport, Runcorn, Burslem, West Bromwich and Kidderminster. Then the metropolis flashed its own sudden canines. A man called Amos suffered a savage amputation of an arm off Kingsway. S.R. Coke, journalist, was boiled in an old copper near Shepherd's Bush. Miss Joan Wayne, a teacher, was fried in segments. Huxley writes, in Brave New World Revisited, that death control is achieved very easily. Birth control is achieved with great difficulty. Burgess's narrative deals with the same concepts, beginning as it does by describing the state's effort to control birth rates. Eventually this fails and leads, through mob rule, to a satirical depiction of the army, conscripting soldiers to send to a phony war in order to slim down the numbers. In Huxley's terminology... Birth control gives way to the much simpler death control. Burgess's depiction of the military in The Wanting Seed speaks of boredom and confusion. Once conscripted, Tristram is posted to a metal island in the Atlantic Ocean, given rations of bully, a tin spam product made from human flesh, and left to wait for the inevitable confrontation with the mysterious, undefined enemy. Burgess's war had the same trials, posted, as he was, to non-combat positions. He explains in Little Wilson and Big God. There was never such idleness as in the home front at that time. They were bored with the excessive repetition of drill movements, naming of parts, lectures on syphilis, exhortations about security and the danger of camp followers. Their evenings were filled with booze and fighting. Occasionally, a local teacher would give a lecture on beetles with lantern slides, or a travelling officer would give a reassuring account of Germany's shortage of oil. In the novel Now, Burgess's student guide to contemporary fiction, he notes that his experience of the army revealed the horrors of a hierarchy of unchecked power. He compares his image of military doctrine to Orwell's image of the boots stamping on a face forever and ever further firming the links between his own military experience and his dystopian fictions burgess draws parallels with orwell's 1984 and norman mailer's war novel the naked and the dead set in the pacific theater mailer's novel shows american soldiers who are fighting fascism but as burgess puts it are fascists themselves and well aware of it the army according to the novel's general cummings is a preview of the future but Burgess sees this as a future very like the one Orwell depicts. It's only morality, 
a power morality. It is hard to imagine dystopian fiction in the vein of Burgess and Orwell being written today. Their political philosophy is so entangled with the experience of military life and their immersion in a world made of grand political concepts such as fascism and communism. Burgess claims that during the war he was never reading literature for pleasure, but rather to try and make sense of the conflict happening around him. Books by writers such as socialist and nationalist Charles Peggy and the anti-state Franz Kafka helped in this process. It can be said that Burgess's, and indeed Orwell's, post-war dystopias also helped in this job of diagnosing the problems of both the war and the consequences of the war in the years that followed. The seemingly prophetic dystopias can be seen as both a representation of the fear the populace had for totalitarian political concepts, but also an attempt to understand the causes of war and the experiences the war dictated. The Second World War also ended with the dawning of the nuclear age, new fears for an already anxious populace. But we, who are free of the ever-present threat of annihilation by either bomb or politic, can only view Burgess's dystopias as fictional artefacts, documenting both the social and the cultural life in the years following the war and vitally realising the emotional impact of a youth that he felt had been lost after he was conscripted, at the age of 23, into the military machine. This podcast was written and presented for the International Anthony Burgess Foundation by Graham Foster. Readings were by Lucia Cox, Claire Dean and Ben Jewell. All music was composed by Anthony Burgess. Mm-hmm.